Matthew 21, when you get it, say, got it. We're going to start in verse 18 uh, and read what we read last week about the fig tree. And then our verses that we're going to be looking at today are verses 20 through 22. So starting Matthew 21, verse 18. In the morning, as he, that is Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The title of this sermon is, Whatever I Ask. Lord, we are thankful for your word. It is a light unto our path. It is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is like bread. It is nourishment for our souls. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open up our ears and eyes to hear and see everything that you have for us from your word. These are great, profound truths found here in these words that you spoke. We want to know what you're saying to us. Thank you that you know each of us individually and perfectly. I ask you to speak to us. Thank you for your church, your bride. Thank you that you are our king and our great shepherd. So we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we saw last week, Jesus curses this fig tree that has no fruit on it, and the thing just withers away. And so the disciples, as we see here, are kind of tripping, right? They've seen Jesus do some pretty cool stuff like heal people who are sick and uh, make things alive that were dead, but they've never seen a living thing be made dead by Jesus. And so they're tripping out. And then they ask Jesus, hey, dude, how did you do this? And he doesn't really answer them except to say in verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And in verse 22, he says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is a pretty wild statement, right? Because we read this and think, I hear what Jesus is saying, but that is not my experience. Like anything you ask, whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive. Like Jesus, really? Because if you've been walking with God for even a year, even a month, then you know that sometimes, maybe often, when we ask God for something, he does not give it to us. This statement that Jesus made contradicts our experience, right? Am I the only one? Okay. Something then has got to give, right? Because over here you've got, yeah, my experience says this thing that I don't always get whatever I ask for in prayer. And over here Jesus is saying, whatever you ask in prayer, you will, you will receive if you have faith. Something has got to give. Either Jesus is off or we're off. And it's not the first one. 
But listen, it's not just us who have this experience. It's not just 21st century, selfish, self-centered American Christians who pray to God and receive a no for an answer. On three distinctly different occasions, Paul the Apostle asked God to take from him what he called a thorn in the flesh, and three different times, God said no. And then Jesus. What about Jesus? Jesus prayed the, the greatest unanswered prayer of all time. When he was in the garden, he said, Lord, please, Father, please, is there another way to do this other than the cross? And the Father said no. And yet it was Jesus who spoke these words in our text, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. So for those of us who read this and think, but my experience is that sometimes I don't receive what I ask for in prayer. Listen, we're not alone. We're in good company. Jesus and Paul had the same experience. But still, it can't be the intention of Jesus to riddle us with some confusing statement, right? This is the last week of Jesus' life. He's not mincing words here. He intends to say something important. But this is a gnarly statement, and Jesus doesn't qualify it in any way to his disciples, which means that they must have understood something that we don't. And that is the key to this passage. The key to unlocking the meaning of this passage is understanding what the disciples understood. See, we're hearing these words with 21st century American ears and 21st century American assumptions. But when Jesus spoke these words, he spoke them to 1st century Jewish men who had grown up in 1st century religious Jewish homes and had certain 1st century Jewish religious assumptions about God about prayer, and about faith. Having had the Old Testament scriptures and stories recounted to them time and time again, the disciples would have had a much different and probably deeper understanding of the nature of God, the nature of prayer, and the nature of faith than most of us do. Their families breathed these Old Testament stories. The culture breathed these Old Testament stories. There was no Netflix or Hulu or movie theaters. When they had family movie nights, it was this. It was stories about these Old Testament people. And that is who Jesus is talking to here. And so he speaks to them in a way that would have made perfect sense to people who had a deep understanding of these things. But for us, Since we're not working with those same assumptions, we're going to have to do some work if we're going to get the gold nugget, so to speak, out of what Jesus is saying here. And make no mistake, there is gold in here. Again, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's zeroing in on some key things that he needs to say. So in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to understand something about these three things, about the nature of God, the nature of prayer, and the nature of faith. First of all, we need to understand some things about the nature of God. Specifically for our purposes today, we need to understand two specific things about the nature of God in order to grasp the meaning of this passage. We need to understand something about the fact that God is sovereign and that God is good. First of all, that God is sovereign. For God to be sovereign means that he is the source of all power, authority, and life. For us to understand that God is sovereign means that we also need to understand that there is nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of his influence and authority. Romans 13 says, There is no authority except from God. 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. To understand God's sovereignty means that we understand that nothing is impossible for him. To understand the fact that God is sovereign means that we understand that no plan of man can prevail against him and no man can thwart his plans. Like Proverbs 21 says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. For us to understand the sovereignty of God means for us to understand that he does whatever pleases him. Daniel 4 says that he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love what John Piper says about this. He says, whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do something that he despises. He has never backed into a corner where his only choice is to do something he hates to do. He does what pleases him. This is what it means to understand that God is sovereign. And this is key to understanding this passage. And it's something that the disciples would have known. The other thing about the nature of God that the disciples would have understood greater than us is that God is good. God is sovereign and God is good. For God to be good means that everything he does is good and everything he does is right. It is intrinsic to who he is to be good. To understand that God is good means to understand that he is a perfect heavenly father and everything that that entails. Now some of us hear the word father and we place our experience of what a father is onto God. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about God being like our earthly fathers. We're talking about a perfect heavenly father who knows what is best and always does what is best. We're talking about a father who is a perfect provider like Jesus told us about in Matthew 6 when he said, don't worry then about your life for your heavenly father knows what you need before you even ask. We're talking about a father who is a perfect protector. I love what Jesus said in Luke 12 when he says, do not be afraid, little flock. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give to you the kingdom. He's a protector. And when we're talking about a father, it means that we're talking about a perfect comforter. To understand that God is good also means for us to understand that he is our shepherd. He is the shepherd that leads us beside the still waters. He is the shepherd who prepares a banqueting table for us in the presence of our enemies. He's the one that we just think about. Thank you, Brian, for singing that song. Who will leave the 99 and go after the one if we're lost. Ezekiel 34 shows us the heart of God as our good shepherd. When it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is coming or when he is among his scattered sheep, so will I care for my sheep and deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. 
He is our shepherd. And to understand that God is good means that we understand that he is out for our good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Which is a really hard verse for some of us to read. Because our version of our good is not always the same as God's version of our good. So when the disciples heard Jesus speak these words about prayer, like he did right here, they heard them with ears that understood these truths about the nature of God. They knew that they were praying to a huge, powerful, perfect, wise, majestic, loving, kind, caring, fatherly shepherd who always does what he pleases to do and always does what is right and good. They would have understood something about the nature of God that we probably don't. The second thing that the disciples would have had a deep understanding of is the nature of prayer. First of all, they would have understood that prayer is not a way for our will to be accomplished. It is a tool that God uses to involve us in accomplishing his will. Listen, guys, this is important because we get this one off. Finite beings do not beckon an infinite, infinite God to do their will. I heard Britt say this recently in a sermon. I loved it. He said, prayer is not God relegating his sovereignty to us. Rather, it is God working his sovereignty through us. Prayer is not a tool that God gives us to get what we want. Here's the deal. God is going to do what God is going to do. Remember, he is sovereign. Nobody moves his hand. And God is going to do what he knows is right and good. Remember, he is good. Prayer is not some hall pass that God gives us that if we ask enough, he'll change his whole protocol and submit his will to ours. The nature and ways of God are not to be submitted to our ways or our thoughts or our worldviews for that matter. What it means to be a Christian is that as followers of Christ, it's the opposite. And our thoughts are our ways, our worldviews are to come under the authority of, be submitted to, and conformed into the image of Christ and the will of God. We don't get to choose. He is God. We are like pawns in his eternal chess game where he's redeeming all mankind to himself. And everything that he does is working to that end. We gave up our rights to try to control everything when we came to the cross, guys. And that is good. And that is right. Because our Father knows what is best, even if we don't see or understand what he sees and understands. Listen, some of us are fathers and mothers in here, right? We should get this. We should get this, that sometimes we know stuff our kids don't know. Halloween just passed. If our kids had their way, they would all be in diabetic comas right now <laughs> because they would have eaten every piece of candy that they got in their little bags on Halloween. But we know something that our kids don't know. And so we don't give them what they think they know is best. Our Father knows something that we don't. 
And to be a Christian means that we trust him and submit to him knowing and doing what is best for us, not the other way around. Here's my question though. What's the deal with prayer then? Like if God's gonna do what God is always gonna do anyways, then what's the point of praying? Is there a point to praying? Yeah, there's a point to praying. First of all, God is our father and he wants to involve us in what he is doing. And prayer has a way of putting us right into the middle of what God is doing. Secondly, prayer has a way of aligning our hearts and our wills to his. When Jesus taught people to pray, he taught them about God's will being done and he taught them about our hearts being aligned with his. And like I said, this is what we should want. We should want God's will to be done. We should want him to have control. How many of us have ever made a mess of something in our lives? Okay, 30 of us have made a mess of something. It's all good. I've made a mess of some stuff in my life. I've made a mess of relationships in my life, you guys. I've made a mess of certain opportunities that like God gave me. I just made a mess of because I was trying to do my thing and control it in my way with my plan. As a human race, we do not have the greatest track record of knowing what and doing what is best for our lives or for our world. We should want our wills to be conformed and aligned with the will of this sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, good God, which is what his nature is, right? And when we come to God in prayer, submitted to this, his nature, that he is sovereign, that he is good, then it's like us recognizing that he knows something we don't and recognizing that he knows best. And so why wouldn't we want our wills to be conformed to that? It's like us getting to sit under like the grand master who is like infinitely more wise than we could ever imagine and learn from him and like have our minds adopt how he thinks. The last reason we pray is that sometimes God waits to act until we ask. I don't get it, man, but we just see it in Scripture. One of like the most clear places is Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, where it's, God says, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap, literally intercede for these people, but there was no one. Therefore, I have poured out my judgment on them. God was waiting for somebody to intercede, to stand in the gap and ask, but nobody did, and so God didn't act. Sometimes... God waits to act until we ask. And so we must ask. But we must ask in light of the nature of God and the nature of prayer. Namely, that God is sovereign and good and that prayer is not a way for our will to be accomplished. It is a tool that God uses to involve us in accomplishing his will. The last thing that the disciples would have understood that we need to understand to grasp this passage is they would have understood something deeper about the nature of faith. Jesus makes two really strong statements here, right? In verse one, he essentially says, you're gonna do greater things than I've done. You'll do the fig tree thing and you'll do other stuff that's crazy, like mountains moving. He says it really clear in John 14 when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to my father. Jesus said, you're going to do greater works 
than me. And then the second kind of crazy statement he makes in verse 22, he says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. Two crazy statements. But both of them have the same contingency. They are both contingent on our faith. He says in verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. And then in verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So then what's up with faith? Hebrews 11 is what we would call the, the hall of faith, right? Because it's like not hall of fame, but hall of faith. Because it's this whole chapter of all these Old Testament people who had these kind of crazy stories of walking by faith. And in the beginning of that chapter, the hall of faith, the writer of Hebrews defines faith as being the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. So what is faith then? Because at a first glance, this verse makes it seem like faith is wishful, optimistic thinking that things will turn out a certain way. But when you start digging into what Hebrews 11 is actually saying, you see that this isn't the kind of faith that these people in the hall of faith had. The people in the hall of faith weren't putting their faith in circumstances turning out a certain way. They were putting their faith in a God who had the power to create whatever circumstances he wanted to. Faith is not wishful, optimistic thinking. To understand the nature of faith means for us to understand that it is not wishful, optimistic thinking. Biblical faith is deeper than that. Biblical faith involves trusting and believing that God is who he says he is, not trusting and believing that a certain situation will turn out a certain way. To understand deeper the nature of faith means that we understand that faith is also not something we try to muster up as much of it as we can. That's a bad sentence. I don't know what that means. But I know what it means. I just wrote it weird. Faith isn't us trying to like muster up more stuff or get like more of it. Come on, dude, just have a little bit of faith. Just have, no, you just got to have more faith. That is not what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you have faith. He's not talking about the size or the depth of our faith. He is talking about the object of our faith. Jesus said over in Matthew 17, if you got faith like a mustard seed, you know how big a mustard seed is? Teeny tiny little thing. He said, you got faith like that, you'll be able to say this mountain move from here to there. It is not about the size or the depth of our faith. It is about the object of our faith. Biblical faith means that God is the object of our faith. He is what we put our hope in. But here's the problem for me. I think that maybe I have had faith like this. Faith like a mustard seed that believes in this infinite God who can do anything he wants. But still, even having what I would call biblical faith, these two statements that Jesus makes are not actually true in my life. I have never done anything greater than Jesus. And I do not receive whatever I ask in prayer. So then something is off. Either Jesus is lying or my understanding of something is wrong. And that's where it comes back to me and us needing to understand the nature of God and the nature of prayer. 
See, the nature of God, the nature of prayer, and the nature of faith all like go in tandem, hand in hand, when it comes to understanding what Jesus is saying here. And if this passage doesn't compute for me or doesn't compute for you, then we are probably missing something about either the nature of God, the nature of prayer, or the nature of faith. I want to say something here about this whole uh, not putting our faith in an outcome, but rather putting our faith in God, him being the object of our faith. And I want to say this as, like, as a brother who loves you guys, cares about you, has had some experience with stuff like this. Listen, guys, to pray and live from a place where our faith is in things turning out a certain way is not only not what it means to walk by faith, but it's, it's also just really dangerous to live in that place because our minds will never be able to comprehend what God means when he says that he is sovereign and good. And so we will always assume that things will turn out according to what we think God being sovereign and good means, which means that we will always be let down and disappointed because his ways are not our ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, Isaiah recorded in Isaiah 55. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't live like this. God did not intend our faith to be in results. God intended our faith to be in him the one who has the power to produce whatever results he wants to. My wife Emily was just up here. Hi, baby. I love you. We, we got married when she was 19 and I was 20. Thanks, Paula, for letting us do that, by the way. That's crazy sauce. We were children, right? We got married. She was 19. I was 20. And so naturally, because we were just kids, we were like, let's wait a few years to have kids, right? So we were like, yeah, we're going to wait five years. Five years until we have some kids. And then a year into marriage, God spoke to us really clearly. And he said, I'm going to give you twin boys. And they're going to be like prophets to the nations. And so we were so convinced God had spoken to us that we were like, dude, God wants to give us kids now. And so we scratched the, scrapped the five-year plan, went off birth control, a month later got pregnant, right? So we go into our first appointment when they're doing the ultrasound and the doctor says, oh, there's your baby, singular. And we were like, there's only one? <laughs> and the doctor was like, yeah, there's only, what do you mean? There's only one. Yes, there's only one. And we were like, oh, I don't know. We thought maybe there was twins. He's like, no, no twins. And then, nine months later, little baby one girl <laughs> is born. Our daughter, Selah. And we were like, I don't know. So two and a half years go by, and Emily gets pregnant again. And we're like, oh, maybe this is the twin. This is the twin boys. Okay, we just, God's outside of time. Okay, that makes sense. Like, he's, yeah, okay. So we go to our first ultrasound, and the doctor says, there's your baby, singular. And again, we're like, 
Are you sure there's only one? <laughs> Same thing. What do you mean? Am I sure? Yes, there's only one baby. And so we say, can you go back and look again? And she's like, yeah, I'll go look again. Goes in, looks again. She hits me on the arm. There's another one. It was hiding behind the first one. I couldn't see it. And it like moved. She's like, wait, how'd you guys know this? And we were like, oh, God told us something. <laughs> so we went home. And we were like, what? God told us we were going to have twin boys and they were going to be prophets to the nations. This is great. Now we're pregnant with twins. What? And so here's, we had this conversation. We said, should we tell people? Because it's first trimester, right? Usually wait because you can miscarry a lot in the first trimester. We said, should we tell people? And then we said these words, there's no way we're going to miscarry. God told us we're having twins and now we're pregnant with twins. Obviously, they're going to come full term. And so we told everybody. We stood in front of the church at Reality Carpinteria on a Sunday morning and told everybody. We told all of our family and all of our friends. And then at 14 weeks, we went in for an appointment. And our little baby twins, their hearts had stopped. And we left there. And I'll tell you what. It wrecked me. Because I was like, Lord, you told me. You said we're going to have twin boys and they're going to be prophets to the nations. And then my wife got pregnant with twins. And now they're gone. I don't know you. I certainly don't trust you. Or I have no clue how to understand what you mean when you say stuff to me. In which case, what am I doing here? What am I doing? Because this whole thing is based on me understanding what you're saying. And for three years, I kept searching for a way to reconcile my experience with what I hoped and thought had always been true about God, namely that he was sovereign and good. And I was constantly living like on the edge of like, being, my faith being just totally shipwrecked. I didn't tell anybody. My wife didn't even know I was going through this. And after three years, I was at some little men's retreat, leading worship, and God, it was like he took the veil off of my eyes and he spoke to me. And what he spoke to me was not necessarily some like hallmark comforting words. What he spoke to me was Truth. And Jesus said, the truth will set you free. It was everything that I didn't know I needed to hear. God spoke to me truth about who he was and who I was. And I was finally able to make peace in my heart with what had happened with our twins. See, for some reason, I thought that God's end goal in my life was to bless me. He was my father. And so he wanted to give good things to me. And I knew what that meant for me, that he would give us prosperity and health to me and my family. And I assumed that everything God did in my life would lead to that end. But while it may be true that God is my father and loves me with an unfathomable love, and cares for me more deeply than I could ever imagine, his ultimate goal in my life is not to bless me and do good to me. His ultimate goal is to accomplish 
his purpose and his will in and through my life. And I, my life is like clay in the hands of the potter who is doing whatever pleases him. And I have no right to say to the potter, why are you doing that? Why are you making me like that? Listen, I gave up that right when I came to the cross. And every part of my life and my family's lives are tools in the hands of God to accomplish his purpose in our world. And he gets to choose how he will use every part of our lives to do that. Does it make it any easier? Does it make it any less painful? No. But it does set me free. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, my wife and I and our family, it is our joy to follow him in this way. There is no greater joy than to see his kingdom come in and through our lives. This is who we are. And so, if it means that God and his sovereignty and goodness in order to accomplish his purpose in our lives chooses miscarriage for our twins instead of long, healthy lives on this earth, then we say, okay, God, all right. You get to choose. You know what is best. We want our lives. We want our lives and our deaths, our health, and our sickness, our wealth and our poverty, our joy and our pain to be used for his glory and his kingdom. Otherwise, what are we doing? What are we doing here? We have an eternity to, for everything to be cool and all good. Like, what are we doing here if we're not about this? And if God's kingdom coming in our lives means something that is not fun or exciting or happy, then so be it. We said, Lord, all right, we're, we're going to say then, like with people like Job, even though you slay me, I'm still going to praise your name. His ways are higher than ours. You know, we'll probably never know the full effect of what God meant that our boys would be like prophets to the nations. But I'll tell you what, man, for the last 10 years, I have carried their story like a banner across the world to hundreds of thousands of people through my music. They, they have, their stories have become like prophets to the nations. Following Jesus, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. The beauty is that his strength really is made perfect in our weakness. And his grace really is sufficient. And his nearness really is our good. Biblical faith means that we believe and trust that God is who he says he is. Namely, that he is sovereign and he is good. You know, sometimes I think we, we try to move mountains that God didn't intend to move in the first place. Paul asked God three times to take that thorn away. Three times God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you seems to mean that when there are mountains in our lives, it's not only that God will actually remove them, but sometimes it means that he is going to enable us to crawl up and over them. My grace is sufficient to Paul means, Paul, everything that I have sovereignly allowed in your life, I have enabled you to endure for my glory and for your good. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6 that we ought to pray for God's kingdom to come. This is where we'll end. Jesus said, pray for God's kingdom to come on earth like it is in heaven. But I think sometimes we make assumptions about what God's kingdom coming on earth means that Jesus was not actually talking about. See, when we think about the kingdom, we think any mountain that looks like a mountain or a giant is just moved. It means less of that bad stuff and more of this good stuff. More joy. Less tears. That means the kingdom. More miraculous healing and less sickness. That means the kingdom coming. More people being raised from the dead and less kids dying. We think the kingdom coming means more of this and less of that. But the kingdom of God coming means that there's more of Jesus, the king, doing his thing, whatever that is. See, the the most simple definition of the kingdom of God, people say, what is the kingdom of God? Here's the most simple definition. The kingdom of God is where the king is. The kingdom is where the king is. And sometimes the king is most present, not in our happiness and health, but in our sickness and sorrow. In the midst of this lost generation in Israel, in the midst of a terrible and broken time in Israel, that is when Jesus showed up. And often in our lives, the king shows up in the most tangible ways when things are the worst and when our prayers seem to be going unanswered. Talk to any follower of Jesus who's been following him for any time. They'll all say the same thing. God is most present in our suffering. Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is among you. Certainly he wasn't saying that there was no more sickness or tears or pain. He chose to not heal everybody. He could have. Remember the pool of Bethesda? Bethesda? There was all these people gathered around trying to get into this healing pool. Jesus healed one of them. One of them. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you, did not mean that there was no sickness or no more pain or that every difficult situation had been resolved. What he meant was the king was among them. The king was among them. And through him, God was accomplishing his perfect will in his perfect way. And that was the kingdom come. And that is how we ought to pray. Amen? But Lord, we need your help. We need your help to understand that you are sovereign and that you are good and what that means. Gosh, Lord, you got to open our eyes to see that. We have to understand, Lord, and it has to be a gift of your grace to understand what prayer is all about. To understand what it means to have you be the object of our faith, Lord, I can't speak good enough words to unlock that in our hearts today. That is something you have to do. And so I'm just asking, Lord, would you please do that? And I'm asking, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here that you would speak truth that would set them free the same way that it did for me after our twins. Lord, you spoke. It took you, it took you five minutes. In five minutes, you flipped my entire life right side up. 
In five minutes, you resolved three years of just like turmoil and doubt. In a, just a couple of minutes, you did it, Lord. I'm just asking that you would do that for my brother or sister in here who doesn't, who doesn't understand that. And so they're living in this constant place of disappointment, feeling like they're being let down. Lord, it's because, it's because that hasn't been unlocked yet. Would you please unlock that in their hearts and minds? Would you please set them free today? This morning, as always, there's communion elements up front where you can come and remember what Christ did when the Father said no. There's no, no other way. What he did when he gave his life, his body was broken and his blood was shed in order to give us access into a relationship with the Father. And on the right and the left is the prayer team. They're here because they want to help. They want to pray for you. Anything that you need this morning, please come and ask them. They want to pray for you. The carpets are here for us to take a posture of humility, acknowledging that God is God and that we are not. I would encourage you to come get on your knees today like you would in ancient times before some king or deity. Come bow down before him, recognizing I'm like a little child who doesn't know anything and you're my father who knows best.